My name is John Diddy. I'm the youth pastor here. If, if you are visiting with us, you may not know me then. So I am the youth pastor. Our lead pastor, Chad uh, Erlenborn, is away this weekend. He'll be back next week actually to begin a new series called Forgotten God about uh, the Holy Spirit. So it's going to be a really um, exciting time, and so I hope you will come back and join us for that. Um, yeah, but for today, you get me. Let's pray. So, Father God, we give you this moment, just this moment in time, as we are gathered as your people. And God, may your word speak to us this morning. We know that you are present, and so we thank you. In your name, amen. So a couple of years ago, I'm just going to grab these stools. A couple of years ago, um, we took a group of students to San Francisco on a missions trip. And it was one of those trips that I was actually, I felt really good about it. You know, there's some times where, where you're going to place and, and you're just really un, unsure and uncertain. But this time, I, I was I was ready because nine months before we left and, and took the group from here, Maple Grove Covenant, to San Francisco, um, my wife and I had moved back to Minnesota from that sort of area. And we had actually taken a group of students a couple years before that on the same trip. So we were feeling pretty confident, pretty good about taking um, the students that time. You know, and, and when, you're, when you're flying places and when you're taking a group of students and you don't know you know, what, what's going to happen, it's, it's best to have the least amount of anxiety possible. Now, something that you may not know about me is that I am, I'm afraid of heights. Like, I don't go up in the clouds here. Um, well, I believe that I'm a little afraid of heights, but I, I think that I'm lying when I say that, and it's getting, it's getting uh, much worse the older I get. A couple of years ago, actually, we were with some of the students at the Water Park of America for moose. And um, we were going up to the, the tallest water slide there. I don't know what it's called. And the lights went out. All the power went out. And when the power came back on, the students saw me holding both sides, of like <laughs> gripping, because I thought I was going to die. I just thought I was going to die, that this was it. This was the ending. And, you know, it's, it's especially bad when it's got, like, when it's the water park, because... The water's got to drip through, so it's like you're on grates the whole time. And the whole time I feel like I'm, I'm super anxious. And I just have to look up. I have to look into the eyes of kids or whatever. So I'm, I, I have a hard time with heights. And you know that feeling that you get, you know, that, that sweaty, upset stomach, anxious feeling when all your kid wanted to do was look over the railing at the mall, you know, that feeling. And that's how it is, at least with me. So I don't do rock climbing I don't, you know, do high ropes courses. I don't like skyscraper observation decks. So these are the things that I'm not, I'm not really into. And um, so now you know that about me. Well, our trip to San Francisco, while I was confident about most of the things, I knew that one of the excursions during the week was going to be walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, I've driven across the Golden Gate Bridge a number of times. I love the Golden Gate Bridge. I have pictures of it in my office. Tracy and I have a picture of ourselves in the Marin headlands. You know, it looks back over the city, and you can see the bridge and, and San Francisco, and I love it. But I don't like the idea of walking across it. So when you're, 
you know, we got there with the students, and I was really excited until I realized, like, teenagers, impulsiveness, not a fully developed frontal cortex. This is a problem, right? This could lead to a situation where someone will die. At least that was, that was where I went with it. And I know that's, that's not healthy. But <laughs> we're walking across, and um, Jen, Good, Jen and Chad Good were along with Tracy and I. They were champs. Tracy and Jen were both like six months pregnant. But, but Jen snapped this picture of me. Um, <laughs> that is legit. Um, there's another picture that's not, it wasn't good enough lighting to, to show it, where there's actually a group of students pretending to jump off the bridge to get me more and more worried. So, but, you know, that's, I think, a good picture of how life is for a lot of us. You know, we live our lives reluctantly. We allow things to stop us in our tracks or to not move us forward. I'm reluctant about heights, but other people are reluctant about many, many other things. Dentist, doctor, something bigger like relationships or moving. We all have something. A job change, traveling abroad, changing your lifestyle just in in some way. These things cause worry, anxiety, and stress in all of us. So the question that I want you to think about this morning as we go through all of this is what, is what are the things in your life that you're reluctant to do? What are they? And we could talk all day about, you know, just those big things. You know, skydiving, something I will never do. Swimming with sharks, something I will probably never do. Eating organ meat with Andrew Zimmern or something like that. Those things are good to talk about. But what are you reluctant about when it comes to God? Where's your reluctance spiritually? On our journey with God, all of us are reluctant at some point. We communicate these reluctancies in different ways. You know, sometimes we say, I, I, just, don't, I just don't hear God, so I don't know the direction that he has for me. Or I just, I don't, I don't feel him. So... I'll just wait. What are the things that cause you to hesitate? For some of you, the voice of God might be strong in your life, and yet there's still this hesitancy, this reluctancy to move forward in the path that maybe he's laying for you. And then there's just the reluctancy to even acknowledge God, to know that he is there and he is waiting So some of us are reluctant to even consider that that might be possible. The thing that I really love about God is that I believe God is ready for your reluctance. I believe he's waiting. And that that moment is not a surprise to him. And maybe to you. You know, I was surprised as walking up to the water slide that I grabbed both sides of the railing. But God's not surprised for those moments. So this morning, I want us to look at a story, the story of Nicodemus, found in John chapter 3. He comes with questions to Jesus. He's a leader among the Jews. He wanted 
to know all about the man Jesus. All about Jesus' teaching. But the story tells us that he came under the cover of night. And so what I would like you to do is actually close your eyes and listen to the story. If that doesn't work well for you, because we all have different learning styles, the words will be on the screen. But I'd like, to just, I'd like you to just sit in the story and listen to Nicodemus, the wondering reluctant. Place yourself in the room next to him or a little ways off overhearing and just listen to the story. This is taken from the message. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born-from-above talk? Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life. It's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Nicodemus asked, What do you mean by this? How does this happen? Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no heresy. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me? What use is there in telling you of the things you can't see? The things of God. No one's ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from the presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see, and then believe it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, and everyone who looks to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. This is how much God loved 
the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because the person's failure to believe in the one of a kind Son of God, when introduced to him. So, Nicodemus, a student of the law, a respected scholar, goes to visit a man who is stirring the pot and saying things that are both interesting and true. He wants to know more, and so he goes to see Jesus. But Jesus sees Nicodemus's reluctance. He sees that Nicodemus is unsure, that he has questions. And Jesus tells Nicodemus about a new way of living. You know, he tells him, stop procrastinating. You understand what is being told to you. You are a leader among these men. This is the new way. This is God's way. One that involves being born again. And as we all would, Nicodemus questions whether or not that's even possible. That's a good thing, right? For all of us. What is this God? But when we're shown the truth, do we then move forward or do we stay reluctant? Our culture is saturated by talk of being born again, and usually it's in a sort of mocking way. And in the version I read, it says, born from above. Jesus talked about this new life to this man, a scholar, who knew all about God but didn't understand the life that was waiting for him. I imagine Nicodemus walking home. Can't you just see it? Because he's a Pharisee. So that meant that he was logical, that he was a student of the law and understood where things were supposed to be. And you can just picture it. You can picture him walking home and wondering under that cloud of darkness. He would have been thinking. And I'm sure that as he started to get more questions, he probably wanted to see Jesus again, or he probably wanted to ask his, you know, co-laborers, the other Pharisees. And we don't get a picture of of Nicodemus again until chapter 7. And in chapter 7, it says, the police answered, have you heard the way he talks? We've never heard anyone speak like this man. Jesus was speaking in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're upset, and he's stirring the pot again. And the Pharisees said, Are you carried away like the rest of the rabble? You don't see any of the leaders believing in him, do you? Or any of the Pharisees? It's only this crowd, ignorant of God's law, that is taken in by him and damned. So to me, that clearly states that Nicodemus is yet to speak up. You don't see any of us believing in this guy, do you? But then Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus earlier and was both ruler and Pharisee, spoke up. Does our law decide about a man's guilt without first listening to him and finding out what he is doing? 
but they cut him off. Are you also campaigning for the Galilean? Examine the evidence. See if any prophet ever comes from Galilee. And then they all went home. Out of the shadows comes Nicodemus. Out of his worrying, out of his reluctancy, suddenly out comes Nicodemus. He's not necessarily siding with Jesus. He's not necessarily saying that he believes in Jesus, but he's asking the questions. He's wanting answers. And when I read this passage, I again, I think about what was he doing? What was his posture? Was he wanting to ask more questions, but they cut him off? He seems to be pushing himself beyond his reluctance until he allows the voice of others And granted, there were a lot of them. But the voice of others begins to speak over his, begins to drown him out, begins to drown out what it is that God's pushing him to do. Sometimes we allow those other voices to speak louder than God's. We're wondering about our lives' next step and how we're going to get there. But our worry and our anxiety overwhelm our faith. And instead of growing forward, we stay put or grow backward. Reluctance creeps in and we believe the lie that we can't do it. There are moments of great reluctance that I'm sure all of us in this room can recall. There are many things that I am scared to do. A couple of years ago... um, I was introduced to somebody who pushed me to do new things. Now, a little very quick background. 12th grade, I decided to run on the cross-country team. I came in last every race except for when the one guy, Tony, got off the injured person's list. I remember being at the end of a race one time and someone looking at me and saying, I saw you sprinted there at the end. I was like, I guess. Could have given more then. (sighs) Our goal was to run a half marathon that senior year when we were at camp, you have to go to camp and run and do that sort of crazy stuff. And I'm with a bunch of people that actually like to run. And then there's me in my t-shirt, chafed. Anyways, and I'm, sorry. And I remember getting to this point and, and there were a lot of people coming back already. I was almost to the halfway point where we got to turn around. And there were so many people coming back that I just turned around. We were supposed to go 13 miles, and I went 11. And so a couple years ago, when I was introduced to somebody, uh, Bradley, if you want to come up, Bradley Hoffbauer from Team World Vision, I believed fully that I could not run 13 miles. Because I was told to do it one time, and I even had Coach Bauer, if you had Coach Bauer, you understand. I had Coach Bauer cheering me on, and I still couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So a couple years ago, um, some of us started uh, doing some stuff with Team World Vision. And so, Bradley, who who are you and why are you here this morning? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Bradley, and I'm uh, I'm the local director here for Team World Vision in the Twin Cities. And um, Team World Vision... um, as, as John pointed out, is, is just, uh, or the, I guess the way that we met, I, I, I actually met John, and, and he was the first um, pastor, or, or you and Chad, really, were the, the first two pastors. And Vicki. Who I, who I asked to run a half marathon, 
uh, with our team. And uh, they were quite reluctant. <laughs> um, and I think Chad immediately put it in your court. Didn't yeah. He? I think it was something like, hey, Big Diddy, you want to run a half marathon? <laughs> yeah, I think it was something like that. I said, sure, if you stop calling me Big Diddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so what, what we... What essentially I, I offered um, to John and Chad was that they could uh, recruit a team of people to run a half marathon and uh, raise money for clean water projects in Africa through World Vision. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Perfect. So um, you obviously had to start some place. You didn't just um, join Team World Vision and start trying to recruit pastors. So what was your story in coming into Team World Vision? Yeah. I, um, I was not a runner. Uh, a lot of people look at me and be like, you look really fast. Well, I'm sorry <laughs> that I look so fast. <laughs> I'm slow. Um, and so I never played a sport in high school, unlike, unlike John, who's a cross-country <laughs> champion. Uh, I never played a sport in high school. Uh, my, my high school is so small, we didn't even have cross country or track. Um, and so didn't do that. Um, avoided all sports, even intramurals in college, because um, I just can't catch a ball. And so it was, it was when I was 23, I was, had just recently been married, that a friend of mine called me and, and um, really convinced my wife to force me to run a half marathon, basically, is what happened. <laughs> For the purpose of, of um, providing some, some basic needs for, for children in Africa. And so uh, reluctantly, I did it. And we trained together. And when I crossed the finish line um, in 2006 for, of my first half marathon, I, uh, I felt good. And I couldn't believe it, that I was standing and that I actually felt good. Um, I ran about an 11 minute and 30 second mile, um, but uh, I felt good. And so the guy who had originally talked me into doing this um, pulled me aside and he said, Brad, how do you feel? I said, I feel great. And he goes, well, you know what your next race should be. It should be um, a half Ironman triathlon with me next year. I said, okay, what's a half Ironman triathlon? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, it's a very long race, and you have to swim and bike and run. So he tells me this, that you have to swim and bike and run, and I said, well, that sounds good, Mike, but uh, there's a few problems. I don't know how to swim, and I'm deathly afraid of water, and I don't own a bicycle. That's no problem, Brad, he says. You can do it. <laughs> okay. So about six months later, I think, man, I should maybe start training for this race. So I call up a buddy of mine, um, his name was John, and he was a Division I collegiate swimmer. Um, swam at Notre Dame for four years, incredibly fast. He was the swim coach at the high school where I was teaching at the time. I said, John, can I come to your uh, swim practice tonight? He goes, yeah, why? Well, I'm training for this race. Really, what race are you training for? Uh, it's a half Ironman triathlon. Really? Do you know how to swim? No. Do you know how far the swim is, Brad? I think it's far. He goes, it's 2,000 meters. It's really far. 
I was like, yeah, I need to get some tips. <laughs> so he invites me out. So I go out to the pool. It's a 50-meter outdoor pool. I can't even make it back and forth one time without stopping on the side. It's really sad. I think I'm doing great. Like, man, I'm really going far. And I get out of the pool about three times back and forth. And um, John, I, I come up to John. I say, so what do you, what do you think? What do I think? I think you're going to drown. <laughs> no, seriously, John, what do you think? No, I seriously think you're going to drown in the water, Brad. He's like, you sink, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if you think to do it in the water, do the opposite because you cannot swim. I was like pretty discouraged. So I went home and I called my friend Michael. I said, Michael, I got bad news. Really? What's the news? I can't do this half Ironman triathlon. Really? Yeah, I can't do it. Why? Well, because I can't swim. Yes, you can. Uh, no, I can't. You weren't there. It was bad. <laughs> John told me. <laughs> he says, well, Brad, you owe me $220 for registration. That's a bummer. So I said, well, I don't know what to do. He goes, well, look, you can do this. Go buy this book. It's called Total Immersion Swimming. Take it to the pool for the next three weeks. Follow the directions. If after three weeks you still feel like you can't do it, you can quit. I'm going to call you, though, in three weeks, and we're going to talk. Um, six months later, I finished the half Ironman triathlon, um, almost dead last. <laughs> it's an eight-hour event. I finished it about 7.55. There were five people behind me. Um, but you know what I realized in that event um, is that there were, there were kind of two voices that I heard. There was the voice of the expert, my friend John, who is still one of my best friends to this day, um, who said, you can't do this, you're going to drown. Who, who he really was caring for, he really did wa not want me to drown, <laughs> in all fairness. Um, but there was the expert who said I couldn't do it. But then there was the peer, my peer, who had been there, Michael didn't know how to swim when he signed up for his first triathlon. He didn't own a bicycle. Uh, so he was a peer who had been there, and he, he encouraged me. He told me he could do it, that he believed in me. That was the first thing he did. He equipped me to do it. He s gave me some steps to take. And then the last thing he did was he, he actually held me accountable. He called me three weeks after I started. And he said, how's it going? And I couldn't believe that I was making it through the water. So... Over time, I ran more races with Team World Vision, and, and over time, I realized again and again and again that the things that I was really afraid of, I really thought I would never learn to swim. You guys probably have a thing in your life where you're just like, yeah, I'll never learn to do that. For me, the next one is learning a language, right? I'll just never do that. Um, when I overcame that, it had an incredible transformative power in my life, and something that has stuck with me to this day. So when I had the opportunity to share that with other people um, and offer them the same opportunity to join Team World Vision, uh, I, I took it. Yeah. So we all start somewhere. Um, so kind of twofold, um, what would you say to that person who, like, we've now piqued their interest? Hey, I, I might want to do this, but I'm afraid. And then we've done this now for three years. So how is this year different? Well, for the person who 
would definitely have been like me, uh, very afraid of doing it, but still a little bit interested. Um, and when I say interested, I mean a very tiny amount of interest. <laughs> um, but there was some kind of tug, you know, when Michael talked to me after that race, there was something that was, that was enticing or alluring about this really, really difficult thing. Um, and, and there was something inside of me kind of compelling me that direction. So that might be you this morning. If that's you, um, I, would, I would give you just a couple of pieces of advice. Of advice. You're going to have people like John in your life who are going to say that you can't do this. Um, no matter what your age is, no matter what your physical capacity is, I've seen miraculous healings on our team. Um, I've seen incredible triumphs over physical disabilities. Um, it's incredibly powerful to see somebody do this. Um, and so this year running a half marathon, um, you know, if, if that's you, just know that there are going to be people in your life who say that you can't do this or that you shouldn't do this. Um, there's also going to be a few people in your life who are like Michael who say that you can do this. Um, both of those people may care about you, and you don't need to write one of them off. <laughs> but you really need to listen to the people who are telling you that you can, who are equipping you, and who are holding you accountable. So that's the first thing I would say. The thing about how it's different this year, you guys have done this as a congregation for the last few years. It's been incredible to watch you guys. You guys were my first church team to, to yep. invite to do than, this with us. More than 50 people have run now with Team Rolling. That's incredible. And, uh, yeah. Um, so the way it's different this year is that um, you guys are familiar with the Covenant Kids Congo partnership with the Covenant Church. And... Um, from what I understand, Chad and John and, and your whole staff and church has been pretty integral to the movement. Um, we will actually be funding water projects that are associated with the Covenant Kids Congo partnership this year. So the funds that you raise, uh, if you sponsored a children through a child through through Covenant Kids Congo, your funds that you raise for water projects will actually be benefiting the communities where they live. Um, so that's an incredible change. The second way it's different is that this year the, the half marathon is actually all downhill. <laughs> that is true. Last year was not downhill, was it? No. <laughs> and I was fifth from last. <laughs> I think you actually were, weren't you? Yes, yeah. I was. Um, so, yeah, this year it is all downhill, and um, that's a good thing. And you'll be funding projects that are associated with Covenant Kids. Yeah, and so our church, you know, within our congregation, uh, more than 70 kids were sponsored last fall. And so we've got an investment in the lives of children in Congo. Our denomination is investing along with World Vision and in creating infrastructure so that there can be support with schools and hospitals. And now through Team World Vision, we're helping to fund the water projects there. So that kids in, like, the picture that was up before can be that ecstatic when, when they have clean water right there where they can get it. And so um, a lot's going on, and you can be a part of that. Uh, we're going to have a meeting right after, uh, right here in the um, worship center. So if you want to stick around, uh, Bradley has some information, can answer some questions. And we'll also have a couple of meetings in, in the next, uh, in the following weeks 
our, our team leaders are Nick Johnson and Melissa Sandro, and so they'll be here facilitating those meetings in the next two weeks. So if you think that this is something that you want to do, but you're a little hesitant today, um, come get your questions answered by Bradley. Even if you're scared to come to the meeting, just come anyway. That's the first step. So, step one. And, and we'll just do it right here so you guys can just stay seated and you can just join the team from right where you're sitting. I'll that go watch your kids. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks, Bradley. Yeah, give Bradley a hand. So, we each, we all hear things like this. We, we hear of new opportunities and we hear God speak to us in different ways. And out of our reluctance, we respond. We respond maybe in apprehension, but in joy. And we respond to the call of God in our life. I asked you earlier to think about that thing. What is that thing that God is calling you to do that you are reluctant to do? And it might not be. I mean, we want you to join Team World Vision because actually it's just really fun. I mean, we just ran around the lake every Wednesday last, last summer, and it's just really fun. Yeah, there's a big goal at the end, but it's really fun. It's fun to do something together like that. But that might not be what it is for you. And so what is it? Maybe you want to join the, the youth group on our missions trip to uh, New York this summer. Or maybe you can't do that, so you want to give financially to help us get there. Or you give to those who are running. Because just running down the road actually doesn't get money for clean water. But it takes all the people that support those who are running. It takes all of those people who are the positive voices in the people's heads to accomplish the goal. And so what is it? What is it that you're reluctant to do, but you know God is calling you? We need to, I need to, wrap things up here. But I just want to tell you one last story. I'm going to paraphrase, so you don't have to push the button. There's a, a book I really love called uh, Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli. And there's a story in it of a guy named Daryl. We talked about this story a couple weeks ago with the students in youth group. And it's a whole section of the book and, um, that's about reluctance. And how even though we are reluctant, we are still growing. Because God can use us in that. And so the story of Daryl is a simple one. It's a guy who really didn't want to serve at the nursing home when the youth group would go. So he would say no until one month they needed another leader because everyone was out sick with the flu. And so Daryl said, fine, I will show up. I will drive the kids. I don't want to be part of any part of the uh, service that you're holding because they would hold a worship service there. I will go. I will bring the kids. That's it. And Daryl stood at the back wall between two men in wheelchairs reluctant to go, uncertain what God would do in that moment. And just as he was about to leave, a guy grabbed his hand, the man in the wheelchair. And as he looked down, Daryl saw a frail, frail, old, lonely man. And Daryl thought, what do I do? So he just held the man's hand. After a little bit of time, Daryl realized he didn't want to leave. That Daryl had been left too many times in his life. And he didn't want to leave this man now. So Daryl, knowing that he had to go, said, 
I'm uh, sorry, I have to leave. I'll be back, I promise. And without warning, he said to the man, I love you. Of course, he was taken off guard, and he thought to himself, well, where did that come from? (laughs) What's the matter with me? But every month after that, Daryl returned to the nursing home, stood in the back, held Oliver, Mr. Leake's hand, and cared for him. That's all he did, though. Mr. Leake didn't speak. He didn't share anything with him. But he just stood there. He was present. And every week, when he, every month when he would leave, he would say, I love you, Mr. Leake. Until the sixth visit, when Oliver had not yet been wheeled in. And Daryl at that time didn't think too much about it. But soon he got worried and he asked the nurse. And she brought him to room 27, where Oliver was laying in his bed, his eyes closed. And at 40 years old, Daryl, who hadn't really experienced death, at least death of anybody close to him, was overwhelmed with emotion. He grabbed Oliver's hand and stayed with him. He wanted to share many things, but he couldn't. He was just quiet. He stayed with Oliver for about an hour until the youth director interrupted and said that they needed to leave. Daryl stood and squeezed Mr. Leake's hand for the last time and said, I'm sorry, Oliver. I have to go. I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze, and Mr. Leake responded. He had squeezed Daryl's hand. The tears were unstoppable, and Daryl stumbled for the door, trying to regain his composure. But a young woman was at the door. It was Mr. Leake's granddaughter. And when she heard that he was near death, she came right away to spend these last hours with him. And she knew what he was trying to say when he would try to say things, unlike the staff at the nursing home. But then he woke up in the middle of the night. And the story goes like this. His eyes were bright and alert, and he looked straight into my eyes and said, please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And he laid back down and closed his eyes. He caught me off guard, and as soon as I gathered my composure, I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him soon, and you can tell him hello. Grandpa struggled to open his eyes again. This time his face lit up with a mischievous smile, and he said, as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know. But Jesus comes to see me every month, and he might not know I've gone. He closed his eyes and hasn't spoken since. And since that moment, I've wanted to meet you. And she kissed Daryl on the cheek. And Mr. Leake died peacefully the next morning. In our reluctance, we can be used in ways that we cannot even imagine. But we have to say yes. We have to step out. We have to move forward and answer that call from God because that's who we're called to be, God's workers, God's kingdom builders here and in this place. And if we give in to our reluctance, 
then what's the work that's happening that we were supposed to be involved in? Nicodemus, at the end of John, John chapter 19, is there when they take Jesus off the cross, no longer hidden by darkness, no longer coming in the night, but helps to take Jesus' body off the cross and prepare it and bury it. Nicodemus, who was reluctant, who answered the call. So let's take a moment to pray. Pray about that thing. What is it? What is it that God's calling you to do? So I'm just going to give you a little bit of time to pray, and then I'll close. But what is it? Ask God now, what's that thing? God, in this moment of stillness, in the quiet, speak to our hearts. God, it might be something big, and it might be something very little. And you call us into those moments, and you do things that we can't imagine. You use us to do your work. God, for the person here who has maybe not contemplated God before, thought about you, has been reluctant, God, speak to them. Tug on their hearts. Help them to see that being born again is just simply being born from above, being loved by you into your kingdom. Help us each, God, to give our lives fully back to you because you, Lord Jesus, through your death, restored our lives, took away the sin, and changed us forever, changed this world forever. And now we are to be used by you. So God, we thank you. In your name, amen.